Hello Sac State students and welcome to another episode of State Hornet Spotlight. This episode we'll be turning it over to news reporter Gavin Rock who spoke with Professor Mona Siegel here at Sac State about the life of suffragette and civil rights activist Mary Church Terrell, whom Professor Siegel presented a lecture on at the Crocker Art Museum's most recent Unite event. So I would like to talk about your Unite presentation. Okay. But first, can I get your name, your title, and what it is you do at Sac State? Sure. So my name is Mona Siegel. I'm a professor of history in the history department at Sacramento State. And I teach courses on world history, on uh, women's history, the history of feminism, and also French history, particularly the era of the French Revolution. So transitioning really quick here into your presentation. Uh, sure. It's clear that among other traits, Terrell, because a lot of your presentation was focused on Mary Church Terrell, and she was brave, tenacious, unwavering, and just had a sense of duty to peacefully combat racial injustice throughout her life. Um, in what ways does Terrell's story speak to you? What, what drew you to talk about uh, Mary Church Terrell in this presentation? Sure, so Mary Church Terrell is somebody who I met first as a historian uh, through the archives. I have dug through her papers, which are mostly at the Library of Congress in Washington, DC, although she also has papers at Howard University. And so I spent time while researching my uh, book that came out this year on global women's feminism and um, was just uh, constantly reminded of the difficult battle that women of color have had in this country as they simultaneously had to fight racial injustice and racial violence, but also fight for a voice as women. From your presentation, you say Terrell was exposed to radical ideas that at such a young age, what were these radical ideas that you quote? In that part of the talk, I was talking about her education in Oberlin, Ohio. That particular essay, she was essentially a senior in high school when she wrote that essay. And um, she clearly had teachers who were already causing her to question the restrictions um, that you know, many claimed were laid out in the Constitution, but that she already was, uh, was questioning and challenging. And then she went on and was educated at Oberlin College, which was one of the few colleges in the United States that was both um, open to men and women and open to all races on an equal basis. Um, some of the, uh, outside of the historically black colleges, it was one of the first to open its doors. And so again, you know, those questions that she was opened up to were core questions about liberty and equality that were, you know, um, taught as, as kind of natural and embedded in American history and American constitutional history, but that so many people uh, weren't living as a lived reality in the late 19th mid to late 19th century when she was going to school. She was pursuing a very serious education in college. She uh, had a choice for kind of an easier track or a less demanding track that is what most women were pushed down in that era. 
she chose to essentially be educated for a full bachelor's degree, which meant learning Latin and Greek as well as a modern language. So she uh, truly earned her education. Oh, I can't even imagine having to learn Latin as just part of your BA. <laughs> and she turned around and taught Latin for a while too in, in her early education career. So she was clearly very ambitious, you know, from such a young age. She was extremely ambitious. And that, you know, in part, that's what made her lived experience so frustrating. I mean, on a general community level, obviously, segregation and lynching and violence were uh, overwhelming oppressions that she fought daily. But she also lived with the knowledge that she had the education and the wherewithal to do anything that any American could, and yet she was halted constantly because of these barriers of race and sex. Yeah, you bring up so many examples just throughout the presentation of those barriers and just how she persists, really, mm -hmm. how she doesn't back down. I would like to uh, talk about, though, um, in spite of facing white supremacist attitudes within the suffragette movement at the time, um, she still persisted and she still was able to be an advocate for women, women of color and communities of color overall. How did she work within the suffragette movement that treated her as an inferior? Yeah, that's a really fabulous question. And it's one that women of color, I'd say particularly black women, but women of color um, from all different uh, immigrant and other communities in the United States continually faced. and. Um, part of the way that with Black women and women of color did that is they did it strategically. So they made alliances and they, you know, threw themselves into the suffrage movement because they shared a common experience of sexual discrimination, but also specifically because they knew that the vote was so incredibly important if they were ever going to be able to uh, correct or to improve things for their own community. Um, but when it came to Mary Church Terrell, she was never one to take discrimination, uh, uh, you know, to just absorb it and walk away she was constantly challenging white women. So I'll give you one very specific example. The international women's organization that Mary Church Terrell ended up most active in was the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. That was a organization that came out of that Zurich meeting that I described in my presentation for UNITE. And it remains today the oldest existing women's peace organization in the world. Very, very shortly after uh, World War I was over when Terrell came back from Europe, some of the white women in the organization, particularly German or Germanic speaking women, uh, began really um, throwing up their arms in protest because they argued that some of the troops that the French were using as part of their occupation force in Germany at the end of World War I were African soldiers. And they these white German women were insisting up and down that these soldiers were rapacious, were assaulting innocent German girls, and um, needed to be removed, that it was a racial threat to Germany. 
because they frame this as, you know, vulnerable young girls who are being raped by men, um, they got a lot of sympathy. Women in England, for example, said, yes, absolutely, we've got to withdraw these Black troops from the Rhineland. And initially, American women seemed pretty ready to follow that line of argument, too. But Mary Church Terrell stepped up and she said, I have to tell you that while I'm concerned about sexual vulnerability of all young women, here in the United States, it is Black women who have been repeatedly raped and violated by white men throughout our nation's history. I see no evidence that these men have engaged in any worse behavior than white men in the Rhineland, and I think that this is race baiting. And so she stood up and um, the American white suffragists, to their credit, uh, listened and refused to back the campaign. Parallels there throughout history of through Jim Crow. And it's kind of a tale as old as the United States, unfortunately, and it hasn't gone away. Yep, and here that, that tale was being yeah. internationalized, essentially. Yeah. On a more tangential note, German ideology pre-World War II around race idea was developed from American law. Mm -hmm. Like acts like Plessy v. Ferguson, which helped establish, you know, racial doctrine in the United States, were subsequently used by organizations we consider like disgusting throughout history by organizations who wanted to ethnically cleanse groups. And yet the foundation is in America. Mm -hmm. So sure, yeah, I mean, the, yeah. the Nazi regime's kind of imperialist strategy, among other things, was inspired by American white settlers' displacement of the Native American population. You give the story of Terrell's friend, Tom Moss, who was lynched by a white mob. And I'd like to read the quote you give from Terrell. I'm assuming it's an excerpt from a longer piece. But mm -hmm. uh, you said, um, Terrell said, when a woman has, has been closely associated with a victim of the mob, from childhood and knows him to be above reproach, the horror and anguish which rend her heart are indescribable. It's a very powerful quote. And do you think, do you see the same type of persecution of Black success in the modern United States today? Um, yes. Uh, I mean, the specific horrors of lynching as they were experienced in Jim Crow no, although certainly we've seen ongoing, you know, uh, very serious matters of violence against Black communities um, that have echoed right up through the present. But your question is more specific about um, Black success. And, you know, I think everything from redlining in, um, in neighborhoods and um, the many, many both um, like, uh, uh, specific decisions and also just implicit bias that have prevented black business owners from getting loans in the same, on the same scale as white business owners um, has you know, stymied black development in this country, economic development uh, in ways that, that are still very prevalent today. How did Mary Church Terrell contribute to the landmark case Brown versus Board of Education. Did she have a personal connection with the case in, in a hands-on way? Do you know what I'm saying? 
Sure. So yeah. So um, Mary Church Terrell, as far as I know, was not involved directly in any way with the Brown versus Board of Education decision itself. What she was involved with was an earlier Supreme Court case that came um, just a couple years, it was, was first filed a couple years before Brown that the NAACP was also involved with. So this is part of a broader, both cases are part of a broader NAACP strategy. And so the case that she was a part of was specifically challenging segregation in restaurants and a few other theaters, specific public places in Washington, DC. And um, the grounds on which those were challenged was a law that had been put in place not too long after the Civil War and kind of this brief hopeful period of reconstruction when it looked like integration was moving forward. And um, I can't remember if I gave the exact quote in the presentation for Unite, but um, the, the law said something along the lines of any upstanding citizen of Washington, D.C. cannot be denied the right to eat in a public est establishment. And that law was still on the books, but it had been forgotten and completely swept aside as Jim Crow segregation practices went in place. So Mary Church Terrell was part of that case. Um, she, you know, the, the, when, they, when she and others went, uh, a, a mixed race group went and sat and tried to eat at Thompson's restaurant in DC, it was a setup, right? They knew that they were gonna be refused service but the point was to be able to then um, establish that as going against standing Washington DC law. It went all the way up to the Supreme Court and was decided in their favor in 1953. So it really began dismantling segregation in DC a year before Brown versus, Board, Brown versus Board of Education. And then that subsequent decision built, built upon it. One last question. It's a bit of a broad question. Um... But given the legacy and history of Terrell, what do you think from her own history we can apply, we as uh, advocates in the broader sense, um, can apply to contemporary political issues or movements that are occurring? Um, good question. So um, in looking at kind of what, you know, what takeaway message can we draw from Terrell's life and experience um, on the one hand, it's just a simple message of perseverance. Um, you know, I think it's very easy for us sitting in the 21st century to sometimes feel as though the odds are against us. Um, you know, it's too big, it's too difficult to bring about broad scale social change. And um, it's easy to be defeated by that. Terrell never let herself be defeated. And I know I take strength from knowing that there were people who came before me who had that level of tenacity. Um, more specifically though, I think Terrell is a perfect example of what uh, academics like to refer to as intersectionality, the way different forms of oppression overlap and come together in individual experience. Terrell um, titled her memoir, um, A Colored Woman in a White World. And she opens her memoir saying, you know, nobody else, no, no white woman has experienced the type of discrimination I have because I am both colored, to use the language of the time, and I am a woman. And her, um, her life experience 
was came at the intersection of those two forms of oppression. And so it's a reminder that in fighting injustice and oppression today, we need to look at those intersections as well and understand how they limit people's life opportunities. Yeah, limiting, but also where to build our alliances from in the communities we are in, you know, and it shouldn't be exclusively based on intersectionality, but being able to make connections with people who have similar experiences to you is kind of fundamental to being human. Mm -hmm. At least I think. Um, anyways, that's, that's about it. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I've enjoyed talking to you. I think you have very smart questions, uh, which makes me happy. I would encourage you to go read my book, which I think you'll find fascinating if you really like history. Um, uh, it's full of people similarly fascinating, but coming from different parts of the world and um, taking up challenges that are that remain with us today. I will definitely keep it on my Christmas wish list. Awesome. <laughs>